Brother Dean has just prayed. People are realizing something's wrong. Something's wrong. I mean, when you drive by some of our even, how should we say, some of our institutions that when we were there growing up, you would have never imagined a cop car sitting outside. It's amazing. But you drive down the highway, you drive down the street, and you see these signs that say, you know, be respectful, be kind, you know, these kinds of things that you see. And, and that's a good thing. The problem is they will not acknowledge the source of that. Where's the source of being kind? Where, where does the source, where does that source come from? You know, when you look at, when I was in school, we had the, you know, the Ten Commandments. And heaven, you know, heaven forbid, somebody should look at the, you know, the Ten Commandments. And, the, you know, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. Don't steal, don't murder, don't do these things, right? That's the source. When you're kind to someone, that source comes from God. He is the, he's the source of that. And we're kind of living in an age where <clears throat> it isn't even acknowledged. He is not acknowledged. Again, it's the idea of trying to be good and trying to be righteous and all these things apart from a righteous and holy and good God, which is impossible to do. And uh, you see what's happening. I, I watched a, a, a YouTube video that just recently, the Epoch Times, Epic Times, and uh, you guys are probably familiar with that. And uh, there was a gentleman who started a Facebook uh, on the exodus of California, he lived there his whole life and, uh, and left and moved to Florida and started saying, well, this thing has just absolutely exploded. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's millions of people every year now leaving California, leaving, all right? They, they can't find, people can't find U-Hauls to get out of the state fast enough. And so he was talking about this, about the fires and how it's burning down. He said when he lived there in the 80s, there was, and I don't want to get, I'm getting off track a little bit, but it does go to what we're going to talk about, you know? God created trees for us to build things and to cut down and to do those things. And while the, now that they've taken over that thing out there, you can't touch a tree, you can't do anything. You know what happened? These trees die, and you know what they become? They become tinder and fire and kindle and all these things, and it burns completely out of control. People are leaving, and instead of looking at it and going, hey, something's wrong, maybe we're not doing something right, what are their reprobate minds? What do they do? They want to raise more taxes. They want to enforce more of this unholiness. It just, it's just a stunning thing to behold. And um, it's stunning to see that. But this is what happens, brethren. When you remove from Scripture, you remove from God, who is the source of all good and good things. Amen. And you try to become a God unto yourself, which is what has happened. And all it's going to do is continue to, to lead us to more ruin, more destruction, more of this unholiness and things. It's, it's a stunning thing to behold. But I'm thankful tonight that we have our Bibles in our hands, amen, that God is sovereign, that he is moving according to his perfect will. And uh, even tonight as we open our Bibles together to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to another archfiend of God. And uh, it is a most amazing portion of scripture as I've sat and studied this out and read it and studied it out and read it. It is a, a most stunning thing to me. And this evening, I pray it is for you as well. Look at verse number one, God's glorious words. We'll be reading verses one through six. We won't get anywhere near, I don't believe, finished tonight because <clears throat> chapter 13, verse number one is what I would call the, uh, is, 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 if you will, spoken on and given commentary on in Revelation chapter 17. And so we're going to Read verse 1, and then we're going to spend some time there and just see how God, how this thing is all brought together for us to understand this portion of Scripture. Let's read verses 1 through 6 together. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Think of that, brother. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were like as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seed and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And that's a really important portion of Scripture right there. When we think of the beast and we think of the man of sin, which we're going to look at tonight and what this depicts. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Isn't it amazing, brothers and sisters? And they worshiped the dragon, and which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, 
Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? Verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. Again, there's the second time we see that. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. Well, that gives us an indication of where he's at and when he's doing his blasphemies. Obviously, the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, and there it is again, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Here in chapter 13, in these verses that we have read, the Spirit of God leads John to give us a most astonishing description of a beast, the Bible says, who rises up out of the sea. The dragon, you remember, the great red dragon, who is Satan, we looked at that, who has been front and center throughout chapter 12, now summons to center stage the first of his two beasts. And this is really quite interesting. This beast becomes the center of the attention uh, for the most part of chapter 13. I want you to see this. He's mentioned 15 times in chapter 13. Now, we've read the first six verses, so he's mentioned in in verse 1. He's mentioned in verse 2, we saw that. He's mentioned in verse 3, we saw that. He's mentioned in verse 4, we saw that. Look at verse number 12 again. He becomes, if you will, the center stage. Satan uh, is, he's summed up by Satan himself, and he is placed in center stage of chapter 13. Look at verse number 12. Now, verse number 11 There's this beast, look what it says, and I beheld another beast coming out upon the earth. That's a different beast, but verse number, uh, the whole, basically the whole chapter of verse 13 deals with the beast of verse number 1. Look there at verse number 12, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth uh, and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, there it is, whose deadly wound was healed. And so again, we're seeing here this center, this attention, if you will, on the beast of verse number 1 of chapter 13. Look at verse 15, same again. The Bible says there, well, I'll continue verse 14. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth and that they should make an image to the beast, that's in verse 1, amen, which uh, hath the wound by a sword and did live. That's an important statement that John makes under the inspiration of God, which is going to come back later to help us understand the seven heads. Verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause them that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And so up to here, that's 13 times that he's mentioned. Look at verse 17 and 18. Again, the closing of the chapter and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast. That's the beast of verse number one, or the number of his name. Herein is wisdom. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And brethren, this is interesting as we look at this, that we're going to see the definition here that, that the beast can be and does many times in Scripture. You can look at it both from a kingdom view and a human view, and particularly here, this is a human view. It's the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and six. Now, it's important for us to understand, brethren, you do realize that the term Antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. It isn't used. This beast here in verse number one is not just an Antichrist, And let me define that for you. An antichrist is one who opposes Christ and substitutes themselves in the place of Christ. This one that we're talking about here, particularly if you want to use biblical terms, which we always want to use, verse number one has to do with the man of sin, if you will. In fact, the son of perdition he's called in the Bible. Both the Old and New Testament speak of a superman. There is no doubt about it, brethren that they speak of a superman who will gain control of the reformed Roman Empire consisting of ten nations. And we're going to look at this. This is a most interesting thing to me as we consider again our text this evening. And as he is preparing, and as this time is being prepared, this Roman, this superman, if you will, will demand 
that he is worshipped in the place of God. There's no question about that. Amen. We read that, the beast. If you don't worship him, you know what's going to happen. Amen. You're going to be rubbed out. But, brothers, as this is being prepared, there's a time, if you will, of preparation for this to take place. It is a most stunning thing. As you look at Scripture, and you look at the term Antichrist, again, not being used here in evolution, in, in, evolution, in Revelation, but it is used, as we know, in other portions of Scripture. There will indeed be a time of preparation for this superman, this, if you will, this uh, man of sin, in a great time of falling away. <laughs> there is a time of this. There is a preparation for that to happen. That doesn't just happen overnight. We just talked about it tonight, didn't we? Talked about that commercial in the 1950s. Think of this, brethren, for just a moment. I'm, I'm just going to say it. I don't care. I watched it not too long ago. In the 1950s, the government actually put out a video Warning young children about homosexuals. Warning them about sodomites and that they could be lurking around. Amen? What an amazing thing that's happened. From that to what? Flying the rainbow flag over our White House. It's a stunning thing. It really is a stunning thing. I was telling, I think, Brother Dean, Wendy, I told her about this yesterday. Saw a, a, a feed that came into my phone, um, and it was a school teacher down in Texas, all right, the kids had called this guy a pedophile. That's what they are. That's what it is. If you are trying to get a hold of little children, you are a pedophile. You are sinful and wicked. The teacher is filmed telling the children, you can't say that. You can't say that. You can't say that. You have to say they are well, I can't remember the terminology exactly. I should have looked it up. Huh? Yes, that's exactly the terminology. You can't say they're pedophiles. You can't say they're sinners. You can't call anything or anyone a sinner anymore. It's an amazing thing, brethren. I'm glad I'm still classifying myself as a saved sinner. Amen. One who does not always obey God. One who disobeys God, and that's sin. Amen. But we see the depth, a preparation time, if you will, for this idea, this, if you will, spirit of Antichrist. And I want you to see this, this time of preparation for the evil to reign, which it will, which is going to happen. As men turn from the Bible, as men turn from Christ, yes, this time of preparation has been going on, brethren, since after the cross. It's a stunning thing, isn't it, when we consider that almost 2,000 years. This time of preparation for the man of sin has been going on and going on and going on for eons. In fact, the author of the book of Revelation is the only other one who mentions in his letters the actual term Antichrist. Again, one who is opposes Christ and one who then substitutes themselves in the place of Christ, demanding worship, brethren. That is truly an antichrist. And I want you to see this, a time of preparation. Look at 1 John. Again, Brother John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is the only one who writes these words, who uses this terminology in his letter here in 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse number 18. And look at the warning that John gives us. Again, a time of preparation for this. This stuff just doesn't happen overnight. We've gone from what we used to be in the 1950s to this now over a period of time. And it's been a time of preparation. It's been a time of dumbing down. It's been a time, if you will, of a serious, as Spurgeon called it, serious spiritual downgrade. It's a stunning thing to behold. But it didn't happen overnight, brothers. You've heard the old... You know, the old, uh, which is true. You can put a frog in a kettle, on a stove, in a cold water, and slowly turn the heat up. And you know what that frog will do? He'll lay right in there and die. He won't jump out as long as it's slow. This has been a slow burn, brothers and sisters. And it is going exactly according to the sovereign hand of God himself. 
Look at 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 18. Little children, it is what? The last time. And as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are what? Many Antichrists, plural. You see that there? Many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So again, John is telling his readers, <laughs> this is what an Antichrist looks like. This is what one who puts himself in the place of God. This is what they look like. This is what they will teach. This is what they will say. Look at verse 19. This is glorious. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Again, a distinguishing mark. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, they that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. Verse 20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lies of the truth. Look at verse 22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ? He is the what? He's the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. It's a stunning thing. There's a road of preparation for this. Not only is one that denies Christ, one who would deny that he comes is the Antichrist, but look, brother, there isn't just a physical thing. There's actually a spirit of Antichrist, which, again, John tells us about. And we see it. We see the spirit of Antichrist alive and well, brothers and sisters. Look at 1 John chapter 4, again, a familiar portion of Scripture. Beloved, again, John, who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of God, by the inspiration of God, was carried along by God, writes these words. Beloved, believe not every spirit, <laughs> but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets, which we're going to look at later on in chapter 13, the other beast that comes out of the land, out of the, out of this, out of the land there, is indeed a false prophet. And I believe a Jew, and I believe that, uh, that what we have going on here in verse number 1 of chapter 13, and verse, as we get to verse number 11, when we get to the false prophet, we have Gentile and Jew. I believe there's a separation and a segregation there. I think that's very clear in Scripture. But look what it says. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that what? Spirit of Antichrist. There's a spirit of Antichrist. There are those who are physically Antichrist who are denying that Christ. But all of this is being used to pave the road for what I believe to be the man of sin. All of it. It's a time of preparation. He will appear. Look here, verse 3. Where have ye have heard that it should come? And even now, what is already in the world? That was a present statement that John made. There has been a preparation for this, brethren, from the time of the cross. The denying of Christ physically, the denying of the gospel concerning him, and also the spirit which does that. There's a spirit of Antichrist. And one thing I know, brethren, tonight, according to God's perfect and holy and glorious timing, at just the right time, at his perfect time, as he has ordained it to be, this man will indeed appear. When the preparation time is done, he will appear, and the Bible says that the world will wander after him. It's a stunning thing, brother. I want you to see this. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is indeed, as the preparation time is finished, this is who appears on the horizon. Again, according to God's perfect will and timing. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us, beginning in verse number 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is all centered around his second advent. 
and are gathering together unto him. I'm, brethren, these verses, the older I get, the more they come to life to me. I don't know about you guys. I think when you're younger, it doesn't bite quite as much. It doesn't grab quite as much. But when you get older and your body parts start falling off, things don't work like they should, suddenly you realize that this really is not my home. This is not where I belong. And I really, truly am waiting at this time for Christ. Look what it says. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. And again, brethren, so many warnings here. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there be come a falling away first. And the Son of Man be what? Revealed, the Son of Perdition. There's a revealing that's going to take place after the time of preparation. And it's going to go smooth as butter. The whirlings, those of the earth, will indeed wander after him. There's no question about that. Look what it says. Again, one who opposes Christ, one who puts himself in the stead of Christ, in the stead of God, one who wants to be worshipped as if he is God. That's the description. Look at verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. Again, this is present thing. This is a present thing on Paul's mind that this is going to happen. This preparation is going to take place, and this man is going to be revealed. He is indeed an antichrist, but he is more than that. He's the son of man. Or the son of man. He's the son of perdition. He's the man of sin, and the world will indeed wander after him. Remember that ye not, that when I was with you, and I told you these things, and ye know now that, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. There it is, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until it, he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And again, brethren, the stage is being set. The dragon has called up his first beast who is going to set the stage and is going to lead this rebellion against God. And when God sees fit, it will be revealed at his good pleasure. It's a stunning thing. In fact, read with me Revelation chapter 13. Look at verses 3 and 4. I've said it several times, but I want us to read it together. It's always good, isn't it, to read the Bible together. This beast that rises up out of the sea. Look there at verses 3 and 4. And I saw one of, one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. Again, that's very important to, to our theology. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? <clears throat> Who is able to make war with him? The world will indeed wander after the beast. Now look there at verse 1 again. John gives us another detail concerning this beast. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast. The Bible says here, John writes, Who rose up out of the sea. John records that this beast rises up out of the sea, which, brethren, gives us a clue and certainly speaks of his kingdom and his origin, which emanates from the Gentile nations. There's no question about that, that this is going to be a Gentile. This beast encompasses the same characteristics. Now listen, brothers, this is what's so amazing about our text. This beast encompasses... All of the characteristics, brother. It's an amazing thing. As the beast in Daniel. Daniel, as you know, we're going to see. Revelation chapter 13 is indeed an exegetical inspired expounding of Daniel chapter 7. 
It's, it's a stunning thing. We're going to spend more time in Daniel chapter 7 as we go through chapter 13 here of Revelation because it is the expounding, the exegesis, inspired exegesis of Daniel chapter 7. It's a stunning thing. It is the same, and they have the same characteristics, all of which are Gentile kingdoms, all of them, Daniel says, all of them rising up out of the sea. I want you to see this. Turn with me to the book of Daniel. We'll see here what Daniel says concerning this. Look at Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see how God in his graciousness gives us these details. It, it is a stunning thing to me as we study these things out. And again, I understand. There are brothers who have a little differing opinion on some of this stuff. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not important, as I say all the time. Your eschatology is very important. What you believe concerning your eschatology dictates much of how you view what's going on and taking place. In fact, it dictates it. When you look at it, you see, yep, I understand what God is doing. I understand that because of what Scripture says here. Not allegorizing it, not spiritualizing it, looking at it and going, that's what Holy Writ says. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse Number one, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. Look at verse three. And four great beasts came up from where? Where did they come out of? They came up from the sea, diverse from one another. Now, brothers, sisters, we don't have time tonight to exegete that, but we will. When you follow verse into verse chapter, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, it's a stunning thing what Daniel reveals. But here again, we have Daniel, the book of Revelation, exegeting what it means for a beast to come up out of the sea. It is these, if you will, if you follow the text along, all of them, which we're going to see, See, it's interesting here. John describes the beast the way Daniel does here in verse, chapter 7, except it's reversed. <laughs> it's an, we're going to look at that. What does that mean? Daniel's looking forward to what's going to take place. John is looking back to what's taking place. And therefore, we get that, if you will, inverted description. But it's the same description. It's the same thing. It's really quite a stunning thing. As I said, Revelation is... The exegetical inspired expounding of Daniel chapter 7. This is exactly what it is. Now look there back in De Revelation chapter 13. Look at how, again, John gives us this glorious and astonishing description of the beast. And this, again, is where we get down into the kind of the, the nitty-gritty, down into the details. Because this causes us to do that. You can't just breeze over this portion of Scripture. It causes us to study and to look down and say, what in the world is Scripture saying? What is John describing? Look there, if you would, how he describes this beast who rises up out of the sea. Look what it says. Having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, brethren, <laughs> there is a lot there. John describes for us here this beast who does rise up out of the sea. Uh, as John says, he has seven heads with each. Very important, brethren. Each of the heads, there's seven, that count them, that's seven. Okay, Each of them heads, everyone being engraved with the name of blasphemy. That's the first thing that draws our attention. This beast is a blasphemer, and we will see that. He continues to be a blasphemer because he hates God. He hates everything about God. In fact, when we get to the portion of what we see, what he blasphemes, the three things, it becomes very clear how much he hates God. He blasphemes his name, blasphemes his tabernacle, and blasphemes his people. <laughs> hates everything God loves. And you have to look, why was he blaspheming those three things? Well, I'm glad you asked, and Lord willing... Not tonight, but we'll get there, Lord willing. The beast also has ten horns. Upon the horns are ten crowns. 
all of which the Spirit of God leads John to interpret for us in Revelation chapter 17. There is nothing left here, brethren, to conjecture. There really isn't. If you simply follow Scripture out, Scripture defines what the ten horns are, what the seven heads are. All of it's very clearly defined. If you hold to a grammatical, literal interpretation of it. And that's what we must do. We must hold to that interpretation. Now look there, and I know it's getting late already. I can't believe it's dark out. But I want to just maybe uh, look at this quickly, and then we'll take it up again there. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Again, the glorious expounding concerning this portion of Scripture. Revelation chapter 17. And again, the definition is here. It's very well defined. And of course, if we understand, like I believe, Scripture is laid out here, we know it's being described. Look at verse number 9. And here's the mind which hath wisdom. That's the second time now tonight, brother, that God has called you and I to have wisdom. Did you catch that? He did it in chapter 13. Now he's doing it here. Have wisdom. Call to mind wisdom. Godly wisdom, godly understanding of what's taking place. Look what it says. The seven heads are what? Seven mountains. And again, brethren, there's no conjecture. There's nothing left to the mind here. Listen, on which the woman sitteth. Now, the seven heads that we see here in this text and that were defined over in chapter 13, verse number 1, John says here that they are what? What does he call it there? He says the seven heads are seven mountains and seven kings. Now, brothers, this is important, again, to allow Scripture speak. Okay, Many times in the Bible, many, many times, too many to describe, many times, mountains in the Bible... In context, and this is what it must be, brother, and it must be in context. You can't just take it out of context. But many times in Scripture, mountains in the context of the text are illustrative of kings and kingdoms and nations. And I want to just show you one, and we'll close with this probably tonight. We'll seal it up because I really want to get into the later portion of this. As, as in Revelation 17, five are fallen, and you look at the five kingdoms that are fallen, and one is, who do you think the kingdom of the one is that we see in Revelation 17? What's the one kingdom that is that John is talking about there? Who's reigning when John's writing Revelation? Thank you, brother. Yeah, the Roman Empire. Then he says there's another one coming, and there's going to be someone who rises up. He's the eighth, but he comes out of the seventh. And it's very clear. It's, it's not as dark and murky as you think. It really isn't. Look at Jeremiah chapter 51. Again, just a couple of them, if you will. Well, we'll just look at one, but there are, there are many, many portions of Scripture that illustrate, God illustrates using a mountain as a kingdom, as a nation, and this is precisely what we're seeing. You have to take it literally, or you will be out there with many of the allegorizers who have come up with many thousands of things that they think this text says. <laughs> it's, it's, brothers, listen. We have to be very careful. We have to love our brothers. We know that some of them are, are, are not there. I know they're not. Amen? And I love most of them except for the ones who really, I think, lean clear into heresy concerning eschatology. And there are some, I believe, do that. There are some of our brothers who I love and will have a great conversation with them about it. But when you just simply let, again, why is it? I ask myself this question all the time. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that every other book in the Bible Almost every other book in the Bible, every book for me in the Bible, I take literally, grammatically, literally, what is it saying to them 
a way of interpreting what's being said. Why is it when we get into the book of Revelation, suddenly that all stops? <laughs> There's no reason for that to stop. God never intended for that to stop. Otherwise, you end up with, you know, with guys like uh, old uh, Brother Camping. Remember him? I started listening to him in 1992. He was a great Reformed teacher, a good Bible teacher, until he got caught up in allegorizing all manner of things in Scripture. It is crazy what happened to him. And by the time it was all done, remember? In 2011, Wendy, remember this? He predicted, he guaranteed the Bible says that Jesus is coming back. That was, what, how many years ago, if my math is right? 2011 to 2022 is how many years, brothers? It's 11 years. Because he allegorized this stuff out. I mean, he went so far as to tell people to leave the local church. God's all done with the local church. And many people left. They flocked out into his church. <laughs> See, he had a radio church. <laughs> people were gathering around the radio listening to their pastor, pastor, pastor Manning, pastor whatever his name was. And in the end, you know what he did? He used the book of Acts, the shipwreck that Paul was in in Acts 28. Remember that one? That's a shipwreck. There was, there was a shipwreck. And you know what? They, they dived off the boat there, and they clung on to the pieces of wood, right? The stuff that was, that was floating around there. Pastor Camping said that that's a picture of how people are supposed to leave the church now, and they're supposed to cling on to other things. And all he did was bring great reproach upon the glorious name of Christ. Because you know what the liberals did after May 21st of 2011? They hunted him like a dog. And they made fun of the Bible. They made fun of Christ. They made fun of everything holy. That's what happens. There's no need, brothers, to do that. Stay within the confines of Scripture. You're not going to wander off. You're not going to go into the book of Acts, chapter 28, and say the shipwreck is a picture of God being done with the churches and you've got to leave and flee the churches. When the absolute opposite is true, instead of fleeing the churches, we should be what? Gathering together more and more in the churches as this stuff is unfolding. Yeah. That's what we should be doing. Not dogging the local church, not having an unhealthy, unholy view of the local church. We should be gathering together as brothers and sisters in a good, let me say that, Bible-believing church. Look here. Look what God does. Again, the idea here of mountains, many times in the Bible, in context, being illustrative of kings and kingdoms and nations. Look here, if you would, at verse 24. Jeremiah 51, this is just one. And I will render unto Babylon. Is Babylon, was Babylon a nation? <laughs> was it? This Wednesday night, you can say amen. Yeah, it was. Babylon's a nation, was a nation. And I think it's alive and well in our country. I think this is modern-day Babylon to a degree. It's amazing. And to all the inhabitants of Chaldea. Well, I think Chaldea was also a nation. All their evil that they have done in Zion, in your sight, saith the Lord. Behold. I am against thee. Who is God against? He's against Babylon and Chaldea. What does he call them? A destructive what? Mountain. You see that there? God uses that terminology in the Old Testament to clarify for us what he's talking about. He's using a mountain here to illustrate Babylon and Chaldea, who are evil, wicked nations that he's going to deal with. Look there. Behold, I'm against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroys all the earth. And I will stretch out my hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks. I will make thee a burnt mountain. And they shall not take of thee a stone or a corner, nor a stone for foundations. But thou shalt be desolate forever, saith the Lord. He's talking about destroying Babylon. 
He's talking about destroying Chaldea for what they've done. Evilness. And he called them what? A destroying mountain. I'm going to destroy you. God does this on several occasions in the Old Testament. Just as he's doing in Revelation chapter 17. The seven heads are seven kings. The seven mountains are indeed speaking of seven, if you will, nations. And I know we're running out of time. But you see this here. Now look quickly, and let's just look at this, and then we'll be finished. Look back there, Revelation 17. Look what he says concerning this portion of Scripture. Look there quickly with me, and then we'll, we'll probably re-hit uh, on it again next week by way of reminder. But quickly as we finish up, look at Revelation chapter 17. Look at verse number 10. He says in 9, And here is the mind which hath wisdom the second time. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And we're going to look at that woman. You realize what that woman is. You back up earlier in the chapter, you'll find out what it is, the false church. It's a stunning thing. But listen to this. The Bible says in verse 10, And there are seven kings. There you go. The seven mountains, the seven heads, the seven kings. This is what John is, uh, is telling us. Look what it says. Five are fallen. Five what? Well, the five nations that is being represented here. Who are the five nations? At the time John was writing Revelation, the five, these five kingdoms have already passed. He's writing this saying, they've already passed. This is what he's saying. Five are fallen. Five of them are already gone. Well, Egypt is one that he certainly has in mind. Assyria, Babylon, which we just read about. Medo-Persia and Greece. Now look at verse 10 again there. One of them, you know, five of them are gone. Look at how he gives us a descriptive there, in, if you will, in verse number 10. Look what he says. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is. Well, which one is reigning when he's writing this? We said it earlier, Rome. The Roman Empire is alive and well. It is definitely indeed one of the seven mountains, one of the seven heads, if you will, here that's being described. Now look there, if you will, verse, in, in verse number 10. I need to stop with this one here. But you look here at verse number 11. And we'll come back to this and spend a little more time. Uh, verse number 10. And the other is not yet come. Well, we know what that is. The kingdom that's yet to come is what? The revived what? Roman Empire. And we're going to look at that again. I'm just laying this out here for next week. There's no question about it, brothers and sisters. This is not... Fufu, Mike making it up. It is simply just following the dictates of Scripture. Look what it says. The other is not yet come. That, again, is the revived Roman Empire. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Now listen to what it says. It is of the seven and goeth into perdition. That, brethren, is a very clear Indication to you and I in verse number 11 that this man of sin, the, the son of perdition, will rise up within the seventh kingdom, which is the revived Roman Empire, and he will take over and rule that empire. This is what's going to take place, brother, according to clear scriptural teaching. Which, again, leads us, as I close... We'll take it up here next week. To one of the most important truths concerning the sixth head of the beast. There's seven heads. The sixth head of the beast. There's a very important doctrinal thing that takes place concerning that. The sixth head of the beast, which I believe is the Roman Empire, was the Roman Empire that John was talking about. In fact, in Revelation 13, look at verse number 3. It speaks not of one head, two heads, three heads, four heads, five heads, six, but seven heads. And if you go down the list and you have Assyria, you have all of these nations. And the sixth one is reigning as he's writing this. The seventh one is yet to come, which would be the revived Roman Empire. But look at verse number 3, and then we're going to stop. And I saw one of his heads. Remember that, brethren? If we're talking about the man of sin who is revealed and he's controlling all of these, if you will, 
It's not one head. It's not two. It's not three. This is important. It's not four. It's not five. It's not six. It's not seven. Oh, it is seven. Now, it's interesting when you look at here, the Bible tells us that one of his heads is wounded. Look what it says there. The Bible says, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Now, brothers, again, we'll take this up. I've got to stop. But next week, Lord willing, okay, it wasn't the man of sin here who was wounded. Many people think that the, the beast here is wounded and dies in the street, and then he raises back to life. That's not what it says. Read it carefully. It says one of his heads was wounded and died and came back to life. That's very important, brother. It's a very important portion of Scripture. In fact, if you look there, John even tells us, and i got to stop, in verses 13 and 14, look what it says. And he doeth great wonders, so he maketh the fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell in the earth by the means of those miracles. And he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying unto them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound, had, uh, which, again, the Bible says, which hath the wound by a sword and did live. The Bible even tells us how this head was killed by the sword. Now, brothers and sisters, if you believe like I do, that this is a picture of the Roman Empire that is killed off and then is raised back again, then I think you have it right. <laughs> now, the man of sin does do some miraculous things, but you've got to read it carefully. It says seven heads and one of them, one of them, not the whole beast, one of them is killed by the sword. How was Rome defeated? <laughs> With the sword, of course. So we see this, brethren, again. And again, I have brothers who go, whoa, wait a minute, fix your... You're out there a little farther than I, can, than I can go. But if you read it carefully, that's what it says. Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven. Seven heads, and one of them is wounded. One of them dies. One of them is revived. And then the whole world does what? Chases after them, which is quite stunning when you think about that. So, all right, I need to stop there this evening, and we'll, uh, Lord willing, you come, al come, al come along next Wednesday night for the wild ride we're going to go on. It'll be, it'll be fun and most amazing, I think. So let's pray together. Father, this evening we, again, grapple and we strain. And we pray that the Spirit of God will help us to understand the Scriptures. Father, we pray for clarity. We are studying the book of Revelation, which means to reveal. There's, this stuff is not meant to be hidden. There are some things that are, which we will look at, but these things are being revealed in your glorious timing. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the warnings we've had tonight. We know there's going to be a time of preparation for the man of sin. There's no question. He is indeed an Antichrist. He is an evil ruler who will indeed perform many miracles and deceive many. But in order for him to do that, there has to be a time of, as we said, a preparation, a spirit of Antichrist. There has to be those who openly rebel and completely deny physically and spiritually the Lord Jesus Christ, who then John calls in Antichrist. And Father, we again thank you for these warnings tonight, for the clarity of that. And there are some details, of course, that we do not fully understand, but these big ones, we can see them. We can see what's happening and what's going to happen, and we thank you for that. And Father, tonight as we close together, we again pray for our brothers and sisters who are ill and not feeling well and feeling the effects of the sinful world we live in. And Father, we pray for those who are traveling tonight, thinking again of, I see Brother Mark's here, but his, his family as they travel. 
think of many who are traveling. And Father, we thank you for your goodness to us tonight. I was just thinking about how blessed we really are. I told Wendy this. We have this, we bought this. This is a stupid thing, but it is a reality. We bought this washer and dryer. And you do so many loads, and then out of the blue, it just tells you, oh, you got to put this chemical in there, and you got to turn it on, and you got to clean it. It ain't going to wash your clothes. And it doesn't. Boy, I'll tell you, I only do laundry very little, but you know who it happens to? It happens to me. It happened again this morning. It wouldn't let me wash my clothes. <laughs> and I bowed my head, and I said, Lord, I'm not even going to get, and this is stupid, you guys, but listen, this is how spoiled we are. I'm not even going to get angry about it this time. I'm just going to simply thank the Lord that I have a washing machine to put my clothes in. Because I do believe there's coming a time when it's all going to change. So, Father, I thank you tonight, and we all do, for those good gifts. Those things that we are so spoiled with. And we thank you for all of them. Father, may we thank you, too, for the times when they are tough and they come. May we as, be as glorious to give you the glory and to give you the worship and the honor that you deserve when that time comes. We think of our brothers and sisters who are indeed persecuted for real. Brother Dean prayed for him tonight. All over the world who are being tortured for your name. And again, this is why as we look at our text in Revelation as we move along, this is why he blasphemed your name. Because within that name, it contains your majesty. It is tied to your glory. It's tied to your holiness. It's tied to your goodness. The first thing that devil has to do is, the first thing when he opens his mouth, he blasphemes your name. And Father, tonight we pray for our brothers who are being tortured and killed for your name. We pray for them with our whole hearts. Pray that you'll relieve them, set them free. And I mean, as they go according to your will, they will be set free. And Father, again, we love you now. And as we get to go home this evening to our quiet homes, to our warm homes and to the food in our fridge. We thank you for that. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.